the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Tired of the negative news and flashover substance? It's time for Today with Dr. Wendy. Dr. Wendy Patrick is a trial attorney, patriot, and Ph.D. with a passion for people and a penchant for politics. Dr. Wendy brings you the headlines, streamlined, news you can use. It's time to be informed, engaged, and entertained. Now, here's your host, Dr. Wendy Patrick. Good evening and welcome to another edition of Today with Dr. Wendy. I'm Wendy Patrick and my co-host Larry Dersham and I, as always, have a great show for you tonight. And we have a fascinating first guest on our lineup. Larry, who do we have on the line? Dr. Stephen J. Allen has a Ph.D. in biodefense as well as a master's in political science and a law degree. Biodefense is the intersection of biology, which is microbiology, biochemistry, and epidemiology, and national security. His mentor was the top expert in the world, the former chief scientist for the Soviet Biological Weapons Program, who had defected to our side. He publicly called Dr. Stephen Allen the best student he ever had. So thank you for being on the program tonight, Stephen. Oh, great to be with you. You know, uh, Steve, biodefense, I mean, that is such a hot topic. Everybody wants to know what it means, what we do about it, who's using it. And, and some, of the, some of what we've learned over the last several years have really just brought this issue back into the spotlight. And I understand, Steve, that when you learned of the Wuhan coronavirus, you personally immediately recognized it as possibly being some kind of a biological weapons leak. And I know that's such a hot, controversial topic. What led you to that suspicion or that conclusion? Well, I actually, it goes back to when I wrote my dissertation, because I actually wrote my dissertation on how the Soviets got away with cheating on the ban on biological weapons, which both the Soviets mm. and the Chinese were our parties to. And uh, the, uh, the, the thing about it is that you, uh, if, you're a bio, if you have a biological weapons program, what you do is you send people out to harvest uh, potential pathogens for use in warfare. So what happened in Wuhan, and I had heard all these stories, was that they, uh, they sent out hundreds of miles to a bat cave where the men had been cleaning out guano, and uh, uh, six of them got sick, three of them died, and they brought that back to study it at the lab, and then they started doing what's called gain-of-function research or defensive biological weapons research. And it was so suspicious. One of the reasons it was suspicious was that when the Soviets had an outbreak of anthrax in 1979 from their illegal anthrax factory, they got American scientists to line up with them and say falsely, because it was a total lie, uh, that it was from, are you ready for this, painted meat sold on the black market. So they told the same lie the Soviets did in 1979 that the Chinese did in 2020. So immediately I started uh, investigating it. We found out the French were warning people about 
how they were uh, very uh, loose at the lab. They were they had had two outbreaks from SARS already coming out of that lab. And then it was just from that point, we started accumulating evidence and it looked more and more every day like it was uh, a leaked uh, biological weapons research project. Wow. How did Dr. Fauci try to cover up his involvement with the gain-of-function research involving coronaviruses? Didn't they use the media, including social media, to try and censor or shame people, including President Trump, who suggested that COVID-19 came from a lab leak in the Wuhan, China? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, In fact, until I believe it was May 25th of 2021, they would just take you off if you said anything on uh, the main social media platforms about the origin of the virus, uh, because it was a crazy conspiracy theory. Of course, it was a crazy conspiracy theory that literally every expert in the world, uh, if they were honest, would say, oh, yeah, that makes sense. That's the most likely version. And so I believe there were 11,000 Twitter accounts under the old management of Twitter, 11,000 Twitter accounts that were uh, evaporated because of people talking about this, 100,000 individual messages, and people got, got the message. I, didn't, I stopped posting stuff because I noticed that none of my uh, Facebook friends would end up reading my post and, and responding to it because they never saw it. Uh, if I t- started talking about this. So uh, they had a concerted campaign. Fauci was the ringleader. Uh, Fauci had been told by the two top virologists in the world immediately that it looked like it was from a lab, and he decided to cover it up, which makes sense since we later discovered uh, that he had been funding this research through the EcoHealth Alliance, giving government money to this private organization that then turned around and gave it to the folks in Wuhan. And I remember Dr. Fauci on the Laura Ingram show, I think it was February 18th of 2020, uh, when he said that, oh, no, that idea of it being a lab leak, that's crazy that he had talked to this Chinese, these Chinese scientists. He had known them for 30 years uh, and they would never lie. And Laura Ingram sort of turned to ashen when, when he said that. And I did the same thing sitting at home because that's exactly what they said when the scientists in America helped the Soviets cover up their program. They said, oh, that's crazy talk about a Soviet biological weapons program. Uh, they would never, they would never, I know these people, they would never lie. So, uh, you know, he's been up to his neck in this thing the whole time. You know, this lab leak theory really has gained some traction on both sides of the aisle over the last several months. And uh, it's sort of surprising to some that originally just dismissed it as implausible, unthinkable, impossible. But now they are looking into whether or not that's feasible and actually quite plausible. But then that still begs the question, was it an accident or did this happen on purpose? And I can imagine you probably have an opinion on that. Oh, well, let me be very, very clear. Uh, There is no doubt where this came from. There are sequences. There's a genetic sequence called double SIG or CGG-CGG that's never been found in nature but is inserted into viruses that they study in laboratories. And there are many other features of this that show that, no, it could not have been something from nature. So don't let anybody fool you. The reason that you may have heard it was low confidence when they were talking about uh, the analysis that it came from a lab. That's simply a term in the intelligence community that means there's dispute among the people in the intelligence community. And there is, because you've got some very bad people in the intelligence community who, frankly, aren't working for our side. We know that from, remember, the people who 
talks about the Hunter Biden laptop and lied about that. So there is no dispute. Now, as far as whether it was an I do believe it was probably an accident because they, they're so sloppy. That lab is supposed to be BSL-4. That's the highest level. That's the one where people walk around in spaces. Uh, but we know that they were very sloppy in that lab. So it probably did leap initially, accidentally. But then the Chinese figured out how they could use it. So they started sending people, infected people, uh, on planes to the West and making sure that it, at least if they were going to be harmed, the West would be harmed at least as badly as they were. And sure enough, they accomplished that. Do you think we're ever going to reach a consensus of if this did come from a lab or if it came from an animal? Because I would just notice the National Institute for Allergies and Infectious Disease still maintains it came from an animal host, although the Department of Energy and I believe the FBI say they believe it came from a lab Leak. I know the Senate Republicans believe that, and the Chinese, of course, the Communist Party, they, they deny it. They think they they stick with the uh, animal uh, transmission route. Now, what's important about this whole thing is the WHO numbers: seven hundred and fifty-seven million people, according to WHO, the World Health Organization, say uh, seven hundred fifty million people have been infected with this COVID nineteen, and uh, seven million people have died as a result of it. So, I think it's really important that we we somebody uh, hopefully it would be the who that would investigate that but i'm not sure we're ever going to get a final answer i hope we do what do you think well the guy who runs uh, the who was installed by the chinese so the answer is and and lied along with them about human human transmission early on in the pandemic and therefore made it hard to respond to it and killed many people because of that. No, the, you're, you're never going to get consensus because the, the people on the other side, including China, uh, they have their folks in place to always cast doubt. There is no doubt. Uh, the idea that it came from a bat or a pangolin, that's the crazy conspiracy theory. And nobody, nobody really believes that. Uh, the, um, uh, but, you know, the thing that people have to understand is that the danger of biological weapons, I wrote a paper on this in 2006. The reason they're more dangerous than nukes is that if you use nukes, it's obvious where it came from. If, it, if you use biological weapons, you can deny responsibility. You can blame it on anybody. In fact, you can blame it on nature. You can say that it's an, uh, something that just happened to occur. And I wrote about that in 2006. And that's exactly what has played out, is the Chinese did this. They murdered a million Americans, roughly, uh, and many millions around the world. Uh, and it is murder. It's like if you're building, even if it's an accidental leak initially, if you're building bombs in your basement and you they blow up and kill everybody in your neighborhood, that's murder. Uh, the Chinese also interfered with the response by lying about it, lying about the origin, lying about whether it's human-to-human transmissible, etc. So they murdered people. And they're going to get away with it because our political class will never respond to this. And by the way, this is not an old... It's not a crazy thing that I'm talking about. That is a long-stated problem in what's called arms control theory, having to do with any kind of arms control, such as the ban on biological weapons, which is what do you do when you catch them? Even if you catch them, there's always going to be just enough doubt that you're not going to actually do anything about it, which means the arms control agreement may be worthless because you can never enforce it. So that's where we are. Steve, we want to thank you for joining us. We're at the end of the show. You have a website in like uh, five seconds or less? 
Uh, I'm at the Conservative Caucus dot uh, org. The Conservative Caucus dot org is my organization. Thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Thank we you, need Dr. to take a short commercial break, but don't touch that dial. We have another amazing segment for you when we return. This is today with Dr. Wendy. We will be back in a flash. News cycle lowlights have no place here. You're listening to the headline highlights on Today with Dr. Wendy on The Answer San Diego. It's time for more news you can use. The headlines streamline. It's time for more Today with Dr. Wendy. Now here's your host, Dr. Wendy Patrick. Welcome back to Today with Dr. Wendy. I'm Wendy Patrick, and we have a fantastic second half of the show for you. Larry, who do we have on the line? James Rosen, the chief White House correspondent for Newsmax, is a veteran Washington correspondent and best-selling historian. He reported for Fox News for nearly two decades, and his writings have appeared in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post, the Atlantic, and National Review, among other outlets. Rosen's previous books include The Strong Man, John Mitchell and the Secrets of Watergate, and Cheney, one-on-one, a candid conversation with America's most controversial statesman. Well, he's just come out with a brand new book this week titled Scalia, Rise to Greatness, 1936 to 1986. And we are so happy to have you on the show tonight, James. Thank you for joining us. Well, you're very kind to have me, both of you. Thank you. James, I think you've probably heard before, people think you might be a little bit of an overachiever, but it's also true that your face and name are known by millions as a reporter for Fox News and Newsmax. And I have to say, both as a Washington, D.C. and White House correspondent, you know, your voice is probably the most distinctive thing. I hear it on the set and I turn and say, you know, I want to hear what he's talking about. And I always wondered, how does somebody as productive and talented as you, how did you get into the news reporting business to begin with? First of all, I'd like to get that question from you in writing. Uh, thank you very much. <laughs> you have to record the re-airing of this, and then you'll have it. <laughs> <laughs> now, that's very kind of you to say. Uh, and um, to the question of how I wound up doing what I'm doing, um, I grew up in the 70s in New York, um, which, you know, being a guy who, who grew up in New York and then moved to Washington, I'm not a real American. My wife, who's from Scranton, Pennsylvania, she's a real American. Uh, but uh, <laughs> uh, I was always fascinated by politics and journalism and uh, studied political science and then I got a journalism degree, did small market TV. And uh, today, you know, I'm so grateful to be with you to talk about this new book, Scalia, Rise to Greatness. Uh, this tells the story of the first 50 years of Antonin Scalia's life. Uh, it ends with him taking his seat on the Supreme Court. So it really tells the story of how he got there. Uh, and what I found was that the two existing biographies of Antonin Scalia that have been published, both uh, issued while he was alive, one of them he cooperated with extensively, the other not at all. They both turned out pretty much in the same place, which is to say fairly open in their contempt for Justice Scalia and his jurisprudence and his legacy and his conduct. So this is the first book about uh, Antonin Scalia published since his death. It makes use of a vast array of uh, documentary and personal sources that were either overlooked by or unavailable to previous biographers. Uh, It's the most comprehensive treatment of his life. Uh, And it's the first, I like to say, the first accurate book about Antonin Scalia because it's the first admiring biography of Antonin Scalia. 
That's great. Oh. Yeah, he is one of my favorite Supreme Court justices. It was such a loss to, you know, for him to pass away. But uh, James, you spent five years researching your new book, Scalia, Rise to Greatness. What new materials did you uncover that have never been published before? Well, there's a real wealth of them. I'll, I'll give you three quick examples. Uh, in 1992, it turns out, uh, in his chambers at the Supreme Court, Justice Scalia conducted a, a secret oral history, looking back on his entire life, where he was interviewed by an attorney who had known him for some years. Uh, and that lengthy look back at his own life, answering questions about his parents, his Jesuitical education, his Catholic faith, um, his, the, the origins of his originalist philosophy, and so on, all of that was not unsealed until 2018. And so on the first biography to make use of this secret old history by, by Justice Scalia. Um, I make use of the first time in any biography of his FBI files, which were released after his death, and which are really revealing because the vast machinery of the world's preeminent law enforcement organization was cranked up with agents fanned out across the country, interviewing people who went back with Scalia to the year 1949 when he was 13. And this happened four times. Uh, in 14 years as he ascended through the executive and then the judicial branches. And only the most superlative testimonials were collected by the FBI agents. Hundreds of pages of people telling him that this was the smartest, most honest, uh, the person of greatest integrity, uh, the best character, and the most suitable for a federal judgeship that they had ever met in their lives. Uh, and then one last sort of corpus of new documents is what I call the RBG Nino papers. We're all familiar with the famous celebrated friendship between Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg and Justice Scalia. Uh, it turns out their friendship really began when they served as judges together on a court one rung below the Supreme Court, the Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia Circuit, often described as the second most powerful court in the, in the country. And uh, going through Ruth Bader Ginsburg's papers at the Library of Congress, I uncovered the, what I call the RBG Nino papers. These are the handwritten notes, the letters, the veranda, the draft opinions that were flying back and forth between the chambers of Ruth Bader Ginsburg and Antonin Scalia when they were both appellate court judges in the early 1980s. And uh, it, not only does it show their, their legal genius as they square off over First Amendment issues and other subjects before them as judges, but it shows their crackling wit and their affection for each other. Uh, RBG is seen alternately needling, controlling, felling over Nino, Nino is seen letting his hair down, admitting error to Ruth Bader Ginsburg, at one point apologizing for producing an opinion in a party fashion, quote, sloth that I am. Uh, not only having read the, the papers of them and other judges on that court, like Robert Bork and others, uh, is it clear that, that their correspondence was unlike any other two judges on that court? It was probably unlike any other correspondence between any two judges on any court at any time. And it really gives the reader of Scalia, Rise to Greatness, a glimpse into the birth and the blossoming of this famous and celebrated friendship. You know, James, as do you. You have just narrated this description in a fashion that I hope characterizes the way you're going to narrate this book, if you haven't done so already. Because just the, the way you really integrate his earlier years, I mean, that's character development. That's what Larry and I and other lawyers do in court with our witnesses, with our clients. And your book is really early character development of Justice Scalia, which I think is a dynamite idea, given that most people only know him for his razor-sharp wit, his opinions, his outspoken nature, but you really took it upon yourself to develop who he is 
underneath the robe, so to speak, in terms of how he got to be who he was. Is that something that you sought to do from the beginning, or is this just kind of the more you the more you found out, the more interested you were in trying to develop his younger years? Well, both are true. It was something I set out to do, and, and it did develop uh, in more and more of a priority as I was researching and writing. Uh, mm. The fact is that the two previous biographies of Antony and Scalia gave very short shrift to a lot of the periods of development in his career that preceded his time on the federal bench. And so all of those phases of his life and career are explored in the greatest detail for the first time. And again, without some tendentious slant placed on it, as the previous biographers tended to do. Uh, And so this is the first book, Scalia Rise to Greatness. It's out this week. It's the first book to really explore the depths and the scope of of, uh, Antonin Scalia's Catholicism, as it was imbued in him from an early age. Uh, and and really how he embodied the American dream, because his father was a, an Italian immigrant, came to this country not speaking English with about $400 to his name in 1920, and wound up a renowned professor of Romance languages. Uh, and his mother, who was herself daughter of Italian immigrants, uh, became a school teacher. And from these sources, uh, young Nino Scalia's immersion in the Catholic faith, with its foundational mm. texts, and its liturgy. And from his father, who, as a professor of Romance languages, repeatedly warned about the perils of translation of different texts from one language to the other, having the purpose of distorting that text. And from the, uh, punctual, the punctuality and the punctualism of his mother, the schoolteacher, all of this formed within young Scalia a profound reverence for foundational texts. And this, of course, carried forth into the originalism that he brought to bear as a federal judge and then as a Supreme Court justice. What is Justice Scalia's legacy in terms of the law in American life, in your opinion? Well, it's not just my opinion. It's a consensus now, uh, certainly in the years since Justice Scalia died, that he, in effect, waged a, a revolution in the law, uh, which was largely successful and, and which um, has profound implications for every corner of American life. Uh, and this is why Scalia is not just one of the most important Supreme Court justices of the last hundred years, but one of the most important Americans of the last hundred years. Until Scalia came along, what prevailed in legal circles was a, a, a notion espoused by liberal lawyers and attorneys and scholars that there's such a thing as the living Constitution. This is the idea that the Constitution should be a living, breathing, expanding, expanding accordion-like uh, organism. Uh, that could account for modern phenomena and circumstances that the founders could never have envisioned, such as the advent of nuclear weapons or the Internet or what have you. And that in order to uh, expand the meaning of the Constitution and other laws passed since then, liberal judges would, would depart from the text of the law and instead look at things like legislative intent. What was said during the debates on the House and Senate floor? What was printed in those committee reports that were generated as a, as a bill snaked its way through the process? Scalia stood afford all of that. Scalia argued that uh, when we're, whether we're looking at a law that was passed a year ago or 50 years ago or a constitutional amendment passed 200 years ago, uh, we should not uh, look at legislative intent. The intent is the text of the law that they voted up or down and that the president signed into law. And Scalia said what, what, we, should, uh, what we should be looking to do when we interpret laws as judges, which is their central business, uh, is is adhering to the original meaning of that the law possessed when, it, at the time, it was enacted. And what's the best tool for discerning what the original meaning of a law was? Scalia called it textualism. Let's look at the text of the law. 
And after Scalia died, uh, no less a figure than Supreme Court Justice Elena Kagan, an appointee of Barack Obama, famously said that as a result, in effect, of, of Scalia's revolution on this point, which shaped how lawyers argue before the Supreme Court, how justices craft their opinions, even how lawmakers craft their laws, uh, again, touching every area of American life, Justice James, Kagan said, we are it. all originalists now. You know, that's a perfect way to end. We're at the very end of the show. We want to thank you so much for joining us. Uh, Scalia, Rise to Greatness, 1936 to 1986, available for purchase. Uh, James, thank you. I can't wait to see you play Justice Scalia in the movie. Thank you, James. (laughs) When it comes out. And thank you to our listeners. You are listening to Today with Dr. Wendy. Thank you for joining us. We hope to see you right back here next Saturday night. In the meantime, God bless you and have a great week. Thank you for joining us for Today with Dr. Wendy. You can learn more about Dr. Wendy and how to become a guest or sponsor of the show by visiting wendypatrickphd.com. That's wendypatrickphd.com. Tune in every week at this same time as Dr. Wendy will engage and inspire you with an upbeat viewpoint on the highlights of the day. This has been Today with Dr. Wendy on The Answer San Diego. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.